Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 113th episode of MGG Fast Finance, the podcast that's old enough to get all the Dominaria references without having to look them up. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product, shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via mtgprice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MDG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. I guess you probably can't say, as always, your co-host, because Cliff was just here last week. He, he, he put on his Travis mask and did his best, best okay. impressions. Just grumpy about a lot of things. Yeah, he was uh, know, grumbling. Uh, all right, good afternoon, everyone. Glad to... Uh, Glad to be here. Another great episode lined up for you. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, what's on the agenda this week? James, this week we have a show in four segments. Segment one is our top movers. We'll look at the cards that have changed the most in price over the last week. Segment two is our cards to watch. James and I are going to look at the cards, some cards that we think uh, could be rising in price in the future. Segment three is our metagame week in review. This week, we're looking at the mocks, the uh, modern mocks that happened this past Monday, April 2nd. Some cool stuff over in there. And finally, our topic of the week, James and I are going to return to some of the basics that we we haven't gotten back to for a while now. Uh, this week, we're going to talk a little bit about what it looks like to store your specs and also to ship them. Um, and maybe some some stuff in that general vicinity. So let's start off our show here. Segment one, our top movers. First card of the week is Platinum Angel out of the Masterpieces set. Starting the week at 80 up to about 120 now. Uh, so it's only, quote unquote, only a 50% gain. Typically not enough to hit our radar. But that's a $40 increase, which is pretty significant. You know, if you had Platinum Angels, you're feeling pretty good about this now. Uh masterpieces have been targeted pretty heavily since the last time basically well let's see since the last time i recorded i don't remember where this landed while you guys were recording but i know mox opals moved pretty hard uh aether vials um mana vaults i think right and mana crypts maybe just vaults there's been a lot of movement on some of the like tier s masterpieces inventions so far uh and it's starting to trickle down to a few of the other targets yeah, I mean, at this point, roughly half the masterpieces have, ho- have already made people money, um, <laughs> and it's it's rivaling some of the more ridiculous collection uh, windfalls that I've encountered over the years as top spec of all time. Yeah, it is nuts how much money may have been made by some people on masterpieces in general. Yeah, and I mean, there there are still some of the ones that just popped that we're going to go through this week are still too cheap overseas so you should be if you don't have your trading partners overseas in place at this point you're doing yourself a disservice and them as well because our everybody we've worked with overseas has has seen benefits from picking up similar cards that we asked them to pick up and sending them along with ours or in your case um, turning you into an international e-commerce pack mule mm-hmm. yep <laughs> uh yeah and it's I mean, I will say it's, you know, it's tougher today than it was a year ago, year and a half ago. The exchange rate has gotten really rough for Americans. 
Whereas we were paying like a seven or eight percent premium uh, on euros. So if it was like a hundred euros, it was like 107, 108 US. Now that's up to like a hundred euros is 125 US. So that exchange rate has really hammered some of the profitability uh, over in Japan too. Um, you know, you, you were upwards of 20 to 30% off compared to the yen. Now it's almost even. So it's, it's not as lucrative as it was. Uh, but hopefully, you know, that it's going to slow it down in, for now, but those rates will likely swing back at some point. Um, and then it will be a really good time to start shoveling money into those markets again. Well, the fact that we're still finding bargains over there, even at that exchange rate, speaks volumes about how underpriced certain cards, especially in the EDH, um, you know, really are in that marketplace. So, uh, you know, I, I've had no short, I think I've sold my eBay 60 day total is somewhere north of 7,000 US. And I've had absolutely no problem finding targets to plow that back into. Jeez. Yeah, I believe it. Um, and while we're here, actually, the uh, sort of Warren piece masterpiece, 70 to 105, um, basically the same story and the other masterpiece. And uh, the next one is is a little more interesting. Scalding Tarn Expeditions from 230 to 350, which is about $120 gain a piece. Um, you know, this one is a little different because this isn't just an invention. We know that the inventions are popular, that those prices move, but this is an expedition. And we haven't talked about expeditions in segment one for quite some time, if I recall. Uh, so, you know, what's your what's your take on this? Are we finally starting to see that that masterpieces excitement bleed into the other printings? I think that's exactly what's going on. People that made money on masterpieces or watched money get got made from the sidelines started poking um, around at the other masterpiece series. So for you know, we've been looking, keeping an eye on invocations. Um, as well as expeditions for ages. And we've seen a few of the others move earlier um, on the expedition side. We saw Ancient Tomb make, make a major move earlier uh, last year. And the question with these higher priced ones, I mean, Scalding Tarn was the most expensive out of the gate um, of the masterpieces that first appeared and has held that position along with Polluted Delta for quite some time. But one of the reasons that we discussed that these didn't move in the way that we saw the... Um, inventions move was this concept that because they were priced pretty high right out of the gate, like Scalding Turn was always 200 plus. That meant that picking up a, a playset was 800 bucks and nobody picks up like one of these and then plays mismatched turns, right? Like the last thing you want to do is have a, a warpy foil as one of your lands as opposed to all four. I mean, typically in modern, you've got a, in legacy, you got to foil out the whole deck or not at all because you can't afford to be lose games over marked cards. So, it's a lot bigger deal to get in on $800 worth of turns than it is to get one masterpiece soul ring when it was like 80 bucks US. And, you know, as a result, um, people overestimated what was going to happen with the expeditions. Then they didn't really perform because they were kind of priced at their penultimate prices very early on. And they sat there for the better part of, you know, two years while the inventory drained out of the market. In the meantime, the inventions were then undervalued. A lot of them spiked because of that. And then we start looking out to see what's going on with the expeditions. And we find that, oh, Tarn and Delta and some of the others are the inventory has drained because even at those high prices, they have, in fact, been swallowed by the smaller segment of the market that was willing to pay that price. And now we're down to the point where Scalding Tarn only has four copies listed for sale on TCG Player, and they are all at 350. Hmm. 
Yeah. So the question now, I think for, for all of our listeners is, well, does that mean I should be buying into the other ones? Um, I haven't looked at the invitation. Um, inventory on the expeditions personally yet to really get a feel for where they are and check price graphs and that type of thing. So I don't have a, a, a straight answer for you on that. I do think that we've basically been on the same page that these will eventually follow the same trends as inventions. We just weren't sure how long it was going to take and how fast it would move. Uh, this could be a, it could be an outlier. It's possible that you'll see scalding tar- tarn jump and the other ones will still take another six months to two years to do the same thing. Or this could be the first domino that sends them all cascading over the next two or three months. I'm not clear on that. Um, but, uh, you know, you guys might want to start doing some of your research and figuring it out because there's probably some, some opportunities out there, uh, you know, and you're not going to find them if you don't look. Let's put it this way. I think it's pretty likely that my next tipping point article is going to be about expeditions. Um, and I would suggest you that our listeners take a look at the um, shock lands. Shock lands are roundly available in the like fifty to eighty dollar range right now. That's got to be too low. Um, they are not typically played as four ofs when they're played these days because there's a lot of like a lot of the uh, land mix compositions in modern and legacy require a little more subtlety, um, but <laughs> many of these cards are starting to edge towards their tipping points, less than 20 copies, less than 15 copies, less than 10 copies. And they're probably too cheap. And they're, these things are not going to get reprinted in this form. And um, when they get reprinted, I suspect they show up as um, cards in either master sets, or occasionally they may make their way into standard. If we're returning to Ravnica this fall, we might see shocks again, but I don't expect that to have any impact uh, any more impact on the expedition versions than say soul ring being reprinted for the umpteenth time in a commander product has on the masterpiece version you don't think that the return of Shocklands to standard would be a catalyst for price movements on the expeditions uh i mean would demand would people potentially purchase expedition versions of overgrown tomb if it made its way into standard Yes, could be. I posit I posit that it would. It may not be dramatic, but if you were on the fence and now the shocks are legal and standard again, so you get to play them there as well. Uh, you know, there's a slim number of people who like to um, put a lot of work into their standard decks. Uh, they're certainly the minority, but they exist. So if they were fairly exclusive to standard, which a lot of people are, this gives them a reason to buy them they didn't have before. Also, it gets anyone who's on the fence about picking them up a little more of a reason to do it. So I don't think you're going to see, you know, if there's 200 hallowed fountains on the market, you're not going to drop to zero. But if there's like 15 on the market, 20 on the market, oh, that could do it. There's a small minority of players that will bling out anything. Like it's just that there are people in their 30s and 40s who are not married, don't have kids and are in peak earning years and have been playing magic for 5, 10, 15 years. And are happy to spend hundreds or thousands on any given deck. Um, and you're right. Like if, if you were on the fence and, and you play both modern and or legacy and you're interested in standard, then, and, and now you can play, I mean, if they come back into standard, then you can also play them in your uh, brawl deck too. Right. Mm, yeah. Um, and they're always good in EDH. So um, these are going to drain. I think they're solid targets. Um, one of the good things you can smart things you can do on TCG player, for instance, is to sort both by highest price, but then cross reference against best selling because best selling, uh, is more likely to lead you to drain like tipping points, um, than prices. Um, 
And and if you see something that is underpriced and draining and it's on the best selling list, then that might be a really solid target. I agree completely. Um, all right. Back to our top movers here. Why don't you give us our next card? So after 15 minute yeah. uh, sideline. You were, you were um, after solving Tarn. <laughs> Yeah. Altar of the Brood from Ugin's Fate promo version, moving from 10 to 15. That's a 50% gain on the back of 5,000 decks on EDH Rec running the card, and it also sees some fringe modern play. Um, that's something that I think we called last summer and we're targeting, and it looks like it's made the appropriate movement. Um, Ancient Tomb from FTV Realms. The This is the quasi... Um, <laughs> uh, reviled FTV foiling process, but it still moved from 50 to 80. Um, ancient tombs uh, are in, uh, st- have strong demand uh, coming from uh, legacy and vintage and, and show up in EDH as well. Um, City of Brass, the Arabian Nights version. This is the birthday gift I got two years ago that j- just keeps on giving. Um, going from 200 to 330. I think it was about 75 when I got it. Um, original printing up 65%. That's a nice... Nice game for people that are holding those old school cards. Um, Lion's Eye Diamond from Mirage moving from 150 to 250. That's a 67% gain reserve list card. Um, fascinating to see how, you know, how many $100 and $150 cards are making busting out and making a move to $200 to $300. Um, it suggests strong elasticity within that price segment. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I... I... I shouldn't be surprised if these cards are capable of moving that, you know, Lion's Eye Diamond can jump from 150 to 250, uh, you know, City of Brass, Arabian Nights, 2 to 330. I, I shouldn't be surprised if these cards can do that, but it's still kind of wild to see it happen. Like, man, there's somebody out there who went, you know what, $150 for Lion's Eye Diamonds, I will pay gladly pay that. I think that they are worth 250 And then there's people paying that number too, or over $300 for the City of Brass is from Arabian Nights. I... I guess it just makes me wonder what the what the real ceiling is on this type of thing. Um, I don't know. Like in in several years, are these cards all thousand dollars? It's it's really tough to get. It's really tough for a card to get from like twenty to a hundred. It's really tough for a hundred to get to five hundred. But it seems um, that the elasticity to get from something like one fifty to two hundred, human brain has trouble processing the difference between that and like three hundred, three fifty. It's because if you can't afford 150, you probably can't afford anything above it either. But if you can afford 150, you probably can also afford 350 um, because that's just one component in whatever deck you're pulling together or whatever collection you're managing. Um, mm-hmm. And the reality is that that's a reserveless card. There's no further supply. No one is popping boxes of that set um, except for the occasional YouTube adventure. And you know, as a result, I I suspect that between you know, it's pressure from collectors, players, speculators, and vendors, and all of that together means just constant drain where s- supply um, is inferior to demand. Yeah, I, and it, it's you are always going to be in the scenario with cards like these, with the City of Brass, the Lions Eye Diamond, and you know, City of Traders, and whichever p- take your pick, where the supply is is in, is uh, inferior to demand. Like that's always going to be true for these cards, essentially, for as long as people want to own Magic cards. It's just a question of like where where can that be pushed to, um, but man, I got to tell you, if I had a lot more money floating around, uh, I might be making a point of buying up more of these types of cards that I saw hanging around. 
because at this point, it just doesn't seem like you can lose. You There might be the opportunity cost might be high. There might be better ways, better targets, but it does not seem like you're ever going to miss on all of these types of cards. Let's put it this way. I've been considering pulling 20K out of my retirement portfolio, <laughs> taking the taking the tax penalty uh, up front and investing that in mid-tier magic cards in the like 100 to 300 dollar range that i think have serious upside i think if you dumped a bunch of money into something like a gaia's cradle um i see no reason why gaia's cradle cannot be a future thousand dollar card within five years starting at the 250 to 300 zone Mm -hmm. yeah it's hard to argue otherwise right like i i I can't i mean you know are you talking the judges or the urza's copies no I'm just talking about Urza's copies. Just the Urza's just copies at a thousand dollars, huh? It's just not that much floating around, right? And you can argue that in EDH, Guy's Cradle sees way more play than, say, Tabernacle does in in Lands and Legacy. Sure, sure. Hmm. So, so I mean, and there's there's a bunch of stuff like that. Like if we had done that last year, like we went pretty deep in Europe on masterpieces, but it's not like we were busting our our retirement savings. No. If we had, however, we would not have been disappointed. No. No, I think, I don't know. I probably bought, I don't know, two to four grand worth, maybe roughly. I could be, I could be underestimating that because I don't remember how much I picked up in Japan too. But, you know, it was, it was below 10 grand. I know that. Mine was, I think mine was closer to six to 8,000 on masterpieces specifically but closer to 10 to 12, including all the stuff that was in Europe between in the first six months of 2017, something like that. I've actually got my spreadsheets fully tallied um, for that period. And I'm going to release them in an article sometime soon so people can see like the nitty gritty detail of the returns. The um, And also how long the average hold was. Because one of the things that's interesting there is that those returns on average were less, were something like six to nine months. So you actually, if once you annualize them, what was about a forty-five or forty-five to fifty-five percent return on average, um, they get even better when, when you put them in an annual perspective. Yeah, it was it was a faster turnaround than I know either of us than either of us anticipated. Yeah, and and so I mean that contributes to you know draining in, in vacations and expeditions. And what's interesting about this like three to six month period we're in now heading through Dominaria and into Magic 2019 is we know what cannot be printed. And that gives a, or is extremely unlikely to be printed during this period heading into the fall. And we don't know whether we're getting a master set in November this year. We can assume that we might, but between now and when that is announced, which should be sometime in the summer, um, we, there is a really big window to make money here um, to acquire cards cheaply from uh, iconic masters and, M25 that people might need if they're just on the, you know, play the game as cheaply as possible tip. And if you're on the speculation tip, you just have <laughs> so many options. So moving right along, we've got ensnaring bridge masterpieces moving from 130 to 220 this week. Another massive gain in ensnaring bridge masterpieces were available very, very cheaply at one point. Like that's after already having jumped up from, I think, 50 or 60. Yeah, it was um, somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah. And I mean... The uh, my trading partner in the UK 
um, who sent me a bunch of his stuff at one point along with my things. Um, his stuff was just sitting around here doing, you know, more or less nothing. I think I flipped some Imperial seals for him at, at some point and maybe a couple of other cards. But now his returns are really starting to accelerate because he's last man standing on a lot of this stuff that I've actually sold out of. Um, and so you know, his mana crypts and soul rings and so forth are going to net very nice profits. Stuff that he was picking up locally in the UK for like 65 pounds or whatever for a soul ring, he's going to end up getting 300 US for. That's going to be real nice. Oh, that is insane. <laughs> um, Cryptolith writes out of Shadows Over Innistrad, a recent uh, standard holdover, um, $4 to about 8 so just about a double up. 9K EDH decks recorded on EDH Rec running this card, um, which, you know, I'm pretty sure we call these foils a ways back. Um, and sure enough, here they are. Um, any of these ubiquitous cross arch archetype, cross commander, um, you know, easy mana requirement cards that are going to fit in all over the place. Keep your eye on those. There's a whole bunch of that kind of stuff in Dominaria that we'll be talking about in the next few weeks. I'm, um, I'm feel like I'm relatively confident that I talked about cryptolithrites somewhere else recently, but I don't see it in our spreadsheets here. So it must've been. Uh, articles or a cast or something, but I feel like I talked about this not that long ago. Somebody can chime in and remind me. Um, yeah, following Crypto Life, you've got both Sphere Resistance and Defense Grid showing up as well, both masterpieces. Uh, 40 to 90 on Sphere of Resistance and 33 to 100 on Defense Grid. These are interesting because Sphere and Defense Grid were definitely way less interesting than there was a way less demand for these two um, along with like grindstone. And there was another one than all the other inventions. These were the real bottom of the barrel sphere of resistance. I don't, I guess they play that in vintage, but I'm not sure if there's anywhere else that sphere of resistance really gets cast. Defense grid shows up in sideboards occasionally in modern and legacy. But again, you know, I, I have played inside boards. I don't think it was really all that common. Um, so there's a little more demand for defense grid than anything else. But to see these go means somebody out there is just like, all right, I'm just going to start at the bottom and start buying cheap masterpieces. And I don't really care what they are. And I'm actually a little surprised now that I look at our list that I don't see grindstone on here. Defense grid's interesting because, as you said, it was way down my priority list, but I did pick up a couple just because masterpieces under 40 that saw any amount of play seemed reasonable. Um, but it actually has a fairly broad demand profile because it gets paid, played in modern legacy and vintage. In modern, it gets played in Ironworks combo, usually as a two of in the sideboard. Um, that deck just finished third place uh, middle of March in, at Grand Prix Phoenix. Um, Blue Red Prison also runs it also as a two of in the sideboard. Um, and that's like War of Invention with and Snaring Bridge and Witchbane Orb and a bunch of other nonsense, like a Tezzeret deck that leverages four War of Invention, which is another one of our picks from a while back. Um, and you also see it show up in um, all sorts of different vintage decks, of course, where, you know, you have access to Mishra's Workshop. So most art taxing artifacts are broken, broken, broken. There's paradoxical outcome decks in vintage that that run it. Um, so... Just sideboard play, like you said, but sideboard play across three formats. And again, um, you know, once the tier S, as you said, masterpieces started to go off, people start looking at, you know, tier A and B and and start wondering, well, these can probably move too. And here we are with very low supply. And so pop, pop, pop. Yeah. Uh, so I guess 
You heard it here first. Grindstone, Synax Big Masterpiece Target. Get <laughs> in on that. Uh, uh, Jason Alt of MTG Price Writing and Brainstorm Brewery called Hex Parasite pretty much as soon as the sagas were announced, and Saga Hype seems to be driving that card. This is non-foils moving from a dollar to four dollars, so three hundred percent. Not the kind of thing you can easily make money on. Uh, unless you can unload some play sets, but might be a great buy list target if you had some sitting around. Um, we've also got Shadow Rift from Tempest. This is the thing that lets you turn a creature into, give a creature shadow and draw a card, I believe. Um, moving from a dollar to over four, that's on popper um, usage. Uh, Reparations is a reserved list card from Mirage that moved from a dollar to four dollars. Again, the kind of thing you're probably going to buy list if you have any sitting around. Um what? I want to point out on Hex Parasite, just as a reminder, that you can't take the third Saga token off, counter off, and then get the third one again. Once you put the third one on, I'm pretty sure it is done for. So you can only bounce between zero and one and one and two, but you can't keep rebinding the third one, just as a reminder. Got it. So I suppose that could change. I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty confident that's how this works. The interesting thing about the sagas is that they are all relatively high casting cost, so tricky to make work in modern, for instance. Um, but in EDH, there's going to be all sorts of abusive things that are going to appear um, as the years drag on because Wizards is not going to dance around trying to make sure these things don't get too good, which means they're going to print a bunch of counter interactions over time um, uh, or cards that can just like flicker enchantments or bring them back or whatever that they're not going to bother playtesting and are just going to slide into the format. And eventually there's going to be a critical mass um, where, you know, three or four of these sagas and foil are probably going to be worth pretty big money down the road. Um, not the least reason of which is that they have fantastic art for the most part. Yeah, I was going to comment that these are, there's going to be an additional demand here that you don't see as much on other cards. It's just, they look very cool. Um, the art on all of them has been stellar. The frame is different. They're just a, they're a cool looking card, something I think people are going to be happy to play with. It is a bummer that where we are with card quality in Magic these days, because these are going to be worse for it. But even still, these will be popular for more reasons than just how playable they are. And I completely agree that a year from now, a couple of these in foils will be worth a lot more than they are today. It's just a matter of figuring out which ones. Yeah. D- Dominaria is the first set as a player and collector that I've looked at and said, you know what? I think I just want a full set. Like, I will probably open enough boxes to just put together a full set. It, I, I also feel that it is the closest I have come to wanting to return to Magic in quite some time. And I say return to Magic, like, actually build standard decks and show up. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, I am also a little peeved that these cards in foil are going to suck. <laughs> They're just the quality is going to be unfortunate. It's like, all right, like, I kind of still want them, but I really wish they didn't feel bad. Yeah, I mean, most of the cards I'm playing with these days, I barely ever get to touch anyway because they're double-sleeved almost immediately um, and then put into hard cases if they're going to be worth anything because otherwise you're dealing with the warping. Um, and especially in, you know, Toronto's very humid. Um, and Buffalo can't be much better. We're all surrounded by water on all sides. So, yeah, it, important to make sure that any of the, the cards produced in the last two, two years, stop with your taping there, sir. Uh, I, I can mute it, by the way, in the <laughs> editor. Right. So, yeah, the moving right along, we got Shiv and Dragon from Revised, apparently going from 250 to 17. Um, I don't know if that's just because they ran out of additional copies for old school play, so people had to start moving in on the Revised copies. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure, I guess. 
Revive Siobhan Dragon. I mean, I guess I guess it is one of the most iconic magic cards. It's up there with, you know, it's like Juzam, Juzam Jin and Siobhan Dragon are two of the most recognizable magic cards. Uh, probably even more so than Black Lotus because Black Lotus wasn't used in promotional material the way Siobhan and Juzam were. Uh, so I guess it's players who just want a nice crisp copy of Siobhan Dragon or at least somebody who thinks players want a nice crisp copy of that. Beyond that, I'm not sure. It's hard to say. There's like three copies listed of Shivan Dragon between 17 and 25 on TCG, so that seems likely to stick. Yeah, I mean, you're not gonna, you probably won't fall all the way back down to 250. Nope. Hmm. So your your local store folks, especially if you're in some rando small town somewhere, may have Shivan sitting around in some bulk banner or whatever. You might want to go pick. Almost definitely, because it was not really worth picking them before. So next on the list we have of our extremely long list this week, um, Stone Rain uh, foils from Arcadian Masks apparently went from $5 to $45. i am going to assume this is because some Ponza builds run this and want to have sexy-looking black-ordered foils that actually look good. Yeah, I mean, it's in the, the green-red land destruction build that won the GP a couple weeks ago and has been kind of on the fringe of being popular in modern. Mm-hmm. This next card I have no idea about. This is our mystery of the week. Last ditch effort from Urza's Legacy. Foils going from a dollar to nine dollars. I'm just going to assume super old foils from original fo- the one of the first foil sets in the game. Um, let's see. One mana, one red instant. Sacrifice X creatures deals X damage to target creature or player. Uh, I guess. I mean, like, you can look at this and go, oh, well, like, Storm could use it to sack all the goblin tokens they made, but then why didn't they just cast Grape Shot in the first place? I am not clear either. It's a good question. I, I poked around. I couldn't find any evidence that anybody was running it on a stream or in a YouTube video or anything lately, but if anybody has any ideas, holler. Ultimately, super unlikely any of us have the very many of these foils <laughs> stashed away, so probably not a big deal. Um, just say... Heart of Oceans from Betrayers of Kamigawa Foils moving from a dollar to fifteen. Also on Saga Hype because this thing lets you mess around with counters on permanence. Which is cool. Um I guess you know this is not the first card of this nature we've seen move. I mean we just talked about Hex Parasite as well. Um, Parasite. Parasite's gotta be better than than this card given the amount you have to pay to recast this thing. Yeah, almost definitely. Uh, and finishing off the week with Marsh Casualties out of Zendikar Foils, 50 cents to 12 bucks. So you've got Legacy Tech written down here. I guess I missed this. Where did this show up in Legacy? All over the place, all of a sudden. I, I find it fascinating, and it, it always makes me feel, it gives, gives me a warm and fuzzy about putting money into cards that other people don't believe are amazing. Things like As Foretold or Dire Fleet Daredevil come to mind um, as cards that people are, that, that encourage split opinions when they first make it onto the scene. This is more of a card that everyone overlooked forever. I mean, this isn't from Battle for Zendikar. This is from Zendikar. This is years ago. And Legacy has been, you know, full of X1 creatures for ages. I mean, most of, many of the relevant uh, uh, creatures are fall prey to this. And... Uh, for people that don't know, this is the black card that can give your, uh, I think, is it opponent's creatures or all creatures minus one, minus one? Uh, I thought it was all. March casualties. Target player controls get minus one, minus one. Right. So this this gets rid of uh, True Name Nemesis. This gets rid of Delvers that haven't flipped. This gets rid of 
Um, doesn't get rid of Deathrite Shaman, right? Because it's a one-two. Correct. It gets Dahlia. Mm-hmm. It gets Mom. It gets Flicker Wisp. Yeah. Gets one-one tokens. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So it it does work. And if you can, if you get to the point where you have five mana, which is not that easy in Legacy, I'm um, given the amount of wastelands running around. But if you can kick it, then you can get rid of shamans and all sorts of other stuff. So this is actually showing up in quite a few decks. Grixis Delver runs it, four color Leovold, Aluren, White Black, uh, which is like taxes builds, Sultai Control. It's all over the place. Well, I suppose Legacy is many things. Uh, one of them is still open for some level of innovation, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's fascinating that this tech was basically back room forever. Um, and now, I mean, Legacy, What? What was? it's not even a, it's an uncommon, right? Right. So an uncommon foil that's mostly played in Legacy, $10 plus. Probably. And since we just got a kicker set and it's not in there, not going to see this for a while. No, no, you're not seeing this reprinted, especially in foil for years at this point. Yeah, so these these foils could climb from here. They, uh, an uncommon from Zendikar is a roughly equivalent, probably a rare today. So, you know, these foils could be 20 or 30 before we see a reprint, if we ever see a reprint. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question is, like, whether there's enough demand for it. I mean, this could just be, like, a moment in the metagame where that's an eff- a useful um, ability when it, you know, it could wane in the future, but... Uh, yeah. The, the, the thing is, the creatures that this kills, we, we forgot to mention Baleful Strix, Snapcaster Mage, for instance. Um, yeah. y- young Pyromancer. They're not going anywhere in that format. Like These are staple core creatures, top 10 creatures in the format, and this deals with them and deals with them in multiples. So, um, seems likely that to stick around. Yeah. yeah, that is true. That is true. All right, uh, let's, uh, let's move on here to segment two, our cards to watch. Um, James, would you like to get us started? I got a spicy one this week. Every single one of my picks this week, except my bonuses, um, is sealed product. Mm. So let me start off with Russian Kaladesh booster boxes. Um, I've waxed prophetic about buying Russian booster boxes in standard as a way to maximize value. Because if you hit a couple of key cards, especially in foil, you tend to get another 10 or $20 in contribution from the box. So if you're going to be buying boxes anyway, and you're the kind of player that challenges yourself to memorize cards without having to read them, then uh, you know that could be a good opportunity for you. Especially since like during pre-orders and into peak supply, you can typically get Russian boxes very close to the price of English. Um, and if, especially if you get a YouTube, cu- uh, I mean a eBay coupon, and you're getting fifteen dollars off a ninety dollar box or something, you could be getting it for seventy five bucks. Um, and the thing about Kaladesh is I think it might break out of the pack um, on the back of invention hype in the midterm. There's plenty of Kaladesh supply still sitting around, but there isn't that much foreign Kaladesh. And if you look at what happened to boxes of cons of Tarkir, where the driving factor was being able potentially to get uh, you know, Russian, Japanese, German, Korean foil uh, fetch lands, um, I think that that is that kind of lottery ticket chasing is comparable to what how people will feel about Kaladesh down the road, where there are something like twelve to fifteen cards they can fet- they could luck into like a one in three chance of pulling out of the box that are worth more than a hundred dollars, um, and you know a handful of cards that are worth three hundred plus. 
that is going to get people to pop boxes down the road. And the thing about Kaladesh is it's got a whole bunch of other artifacts in it that are important for EDH that would be lovely to have Russian foils of. This is uh, this is quite a quite a gambit, especially considering how we typically treat sealed product on the show. Um, but I mean, there is a lot of interesting stuff in there. You've got all the inventions and a lot of these Kaladesh cards that look like they could look a lot better uh, a little ways down the road. So I, I would imagine the hardest part here it's not necessarily that your 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 spec is bad. It's probably just gonna be hard to find these, right? Like how readily available is this product? So sports and more. We'll sell you this product for my target price here of uh, about $110, and they have plenty. And you wait for a coupon, you could get these still for $95. And I think that these, a Russian Kaladesh box, three years from now, I predict will be $200. And there are other specs that you can um, make better money on faster. But if you're the, a sealed collector, I think this is your moment to go ahead and dive in. I don't think, I think in general, sealed product is still a bad idea, but... This, I think these boxes are very likely to appreciate similarly to what Concept Harkir Russian did, which is north of 200 now. Um, and I mean, think about the other stuff that's in this set for EDH purposes. Etherflex Reservoir, uh, Etherworks Marvel, um, Bomat Courier could be an important card in Modern and or Legacy. Um, you've got... Panharmonicon in this set. Panharmonicon, yes. Um, we've got Gearper Ori. We've got... Um, Metalwork Colossus. Uh, we've got Scrap Heap Scrounger for Modern. Smuggler's Copter could make it could become a thing in Modern at some point. Um, and that's just in the artifact cards. There's a but there's a bunch of relevant legends too, like Sram's in this set, right? Ah, uh, yes, yes, he is. Uh, is he in the set or is he in Ether Revolt? Sram. Uh, I think Sram might be Ether Revolt actually. Yeah, yeah, he is Ether Revolt, yeah. We do have all of the uh, the gear hulks, several of which are relevant for EDH. Um, so, uh, inventions is going to be enough. Um, the other stuff is a bonus. The price tag once you get a coupon is going to be pretty attractive. Uh, what's your first pick? Well, uh, you know we've seen all the masterpieces bouncing around lately. I figure why not hop on that train yet again. So I will start this week with Arcbound Ravager. You can find copies at around 1, 110, 115 for the Masterpiece Ravagers. This is one of the most playable and best uh, inventions creatures. Creatures in inventions, one of the best cards in inventions. Um, that hasn't seen a dramatic rise in price yet. Mox Opal's up to $300. Uh, Arcbound Ravager is obviously uh, the core of modern affinity which has been a tier one to 1.5 um deck in the entirety of that format it is uh also viable in legacy um overall i just think that arcbound ravager is unlikely to be less than 200 dollars before the year's end uh especially with the way people are treating masterpieces lately i was picking these up in europe for like 45 to 50 this time last year and already sold out of all of mine closer to 100 happily but I think you're right. I think going back in on these near 100, 110, expecting to get out closer to 200 is probably the right play. There's very few left on TCG. The ramp is extremely steep, which means that like the price of the lowest price copy versus like the second, third, fourth, fifth copy, they're ratcheting up in increments of like $15 each. That is mm -hmm. a clear sign of something that's at a tipping point. Yep. 
Yep. The, the, the supply is low and the appearance of them on the market as a card that is going to jump up 20, 30, $40 real quick. Evergreen decks in modern first thing that comes to mind has to be affinity. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you could pick a card that is more present in that format than, or has been more present in that format than affinity. Yep. Like if it's there from day one and it's still there. Right. And, and was one of the only, we've talked about it before, how it was one of the only decks that was good during Eldrazi winter that was fast enough to actually tackle thought not seers and reality smashers that were coming down on turn two and three. Yeah. And, and, you know, it hasn't really come up recently, but there has been many points in the formats history where people talked about banning that deck because it was too good. But, but I think we can all agree we're pretty much pa- past that at this point. There are other cards that would be targeted ahead of, say, Mox Opal, if that was the thing that was targeted to slow them down. And even Opal seems super safe um, because the format's just so balanced right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say we're definitely not at a uh, format is going to... I, I we're, we're not at a point where anyone's thinking about any cards getting banned in modern, that's for sure. But it, it has been at the power level where that was in discussion. This is a red hot target where I think you could you could go in on your Ravager, <laughs> exit north of one hundred and sixty, go back and get the Russian box, and you'd be compounding pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, okay, <clears throat> what else you got for us? So the other uh, sealed product that I've talked about at least twice before, FTV Realms is so underpriced it's ridiculous. Still copies floating around at one hundred and thirty to one hundred and thirty five dollars with a coupon. You might be able to get that at one hundred and ten, one hundred and fifteen, and this set has a hard $240 in value. If, if you look at what's in this set, you, it does not make any sense that it is this undervalued. Ancient Tomb was on the list this week, popping up again. Now it's at 80 bucks. Dryad Arbor, um, the sneaky Dryad Arbor that no one likes in modern, um, 30 bucks. Urborg Tomb of Yogmoth, 30 bucks. So that's $130 covers off the price of the box on the first three cards, which you will easily flip. Doesn't even take that much like effort to pull three cards out, put them in a sleeve, put them up on eBay and flip them. Then you get to keep Grove of the Burn Willows, Boseju, Basuva, Maze of Ith, Glacial Chasm, Forbidden Orchard, Cephalid Coliseum, High Market, Murmuring Bosk, Windbrisk Heights, Desert, and Shivan Gorge. At least six of those cards matter for your EDH decks or could be used in modern. Yeah, FTV Realms is nuts. And I remember snatching up several of these at like 70 or 80 bucks a while ago, just in awe of the fact that they weren't more. I'm like, I don't understand. Like right now, if you add up the individual price of all of these cards, they're worth more than this sealed box. I'm like, okay. So I grabbed them. I've been hanging out with them. uh, And I dug them out of my closet again because I forgot they were there. And I stumbled upon them several weeks ago. Uh, I put up two for sale and they didn't do anything for a while. And then like a week ago, they both sold right away. And I was like, okay, people realize what's going on here. So I haven't put the, the rest of them up for sale yet, but yeah, this is uh this is a nuts value right now. And it's, it's actually kind of shifted because for a while, Grove of the Burn Willows was worth a ton. And this was a, uh, was valuable because of Grove of the Burnwells, right. and that sort of receded, but all the other cards have bumped up again. If Grove of the Burnwells spiked again, this would pick up another thirty or forty dollars. Yeah, and like the, the Maze of Ith looks really good in sleeve for EDH. The Vesuva has infinite <laughs> uses in EDH, and and it gets played in lands in in Legacy, right? Um, and lands is, is ascendant in that format currently. There was tons of it on camera at the GP in Seattle um, yesterday, so. Yeah, hmm. Realms is 
rock solid value, impossible to go wrong. You pick up like four of these, you can start saying selling playset, turn around and sell a playset of the ancient tombs for like three hundred plus and recoup most of your cost right there. Yeah, I, I mean it's it's a it is a great box set to own right now for sure. Uh, I, I completely agree. The only the only catch here is. I don't think this is not immune to reprints and it's not immune to uh, changes in the metagame. Um, and I can point to Grove of the Burn Willows as exactly evidence of that because Grove was like a $70 card at one point and has now pulled way back. Its low was like 25 or 30 after that. And I think it's, rec- it's climbed back a little bit. Um, but these cards will move if they fall out of favor or if they get reprinted. So there's definitely there's 100% room to profit on realms but don't think that these are bulletproof and you can wait forever and then sell them because if the metagame moves away from some of these and you get a couple more reprints no one's going to need these anymore these are not uh particularly compelling uh print versions like you know people don't love that foiling process so if there's you're not going to maintain demand because they're an awesome foil years down the road your backstop on this if you're in any way worried about any of those influences is you can buy i think you can buy list these to card kingdom for more than you pay for them it's like Uh, you're giving 46 on the ancient tombs that's probably going to get bumped up pretty shortly let's say that they end up giving 55 on that dryad arbors they're giving 21 that takes you close to 80 and i'm guessing that the urborg and the grove they're giving over 10 each which would get you pretty close to the price of the box yeah yeah, quite possibly. So they're giving they're they're actually paying twenty four on Urborg. Whew. You you can just buy these boxes and buy list them the next day, <laughs> and then be up with ten or fifteen bucks. No more, way way more than that. I've only looked at the top four cards, right? Jeez. Yep. So there you go. Buy FTV Realms and uh, FTV Realms slam dunk. Like I'm, I'm going to go buy a couple. I I'm actually still sitting on a couple. But that I bought it, like you were saying, when it was 70 and it was worth 140 or so, I sold a couple like that, made 15, 20 bucks after fees or whatever, no big deal. But I, I think at this higher price, now that they're more like 115 to purchase, they're they're still worth. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, hard to argue. Your next All list. Right. Um, also a masterpiece this week is Chromatic Lantern. Um, currently available around $90 or so. Supply is also very low. Clearly, people are interested in these. The price curve on this um, is the same as Arkbond Ravagers, which is that it hasn't spiked recently. So it's not like this is $90 and already uh, ha- you know, just jumped up for $50 or anything like that. It got here. It's been hanging out here for a while. Uh, we know that it's wildly popular in Modern, or I'm sorry, in EDH. Uh, and I think some of these cards that are coming out in Dominaria only improve that. For instance, there's that uh, Joda fellow who is the Jeskai commander, but he if you you can he gives you uh, what is it Fist of the Suns. You can pay all five colors rather than um, their casting cost. And with the rules change, you can now generate all colors of mana, no matter what your general colors are. So Chromatic Lantern is really good for that deck. Because once you put that baby in the play, it's just like, okay, here you go. All, all of your lands make all of the colors, so it's no problem paying for his abilities. So you've got another reason for people to want Chromatic Lanterns. It's also one of the best monorax in the format. Anyways, uh, you know, I, I don't feel like I need to go on and on selling you this card. Low supply, copies are at 90 bucks. hasn't spiked recently. 
easy ride to 150, possibly more. Yeah, I, I can see that being a slam dunk. I mean, it's utterly ubiquitous in Commander. Yeah, just like what? How many decks in Commander don't play that card? It's not a lot of them. I'm actually surprised that at some point we haven't seen this enter into modern. I mean, obviously it's one of these no impact on board when played cards, but the it's not it's a three casting cost, and suddenly all your lands make any color. There's no way to right. abuse that. Yeah, I mean, I guess so far there hasn't been, uh, but you know who knows. You know, eventually maybe it is. It is a touch slow, probably. Well, it's, it's um, certainly it's, slow, but there's all sorts of weird janky decks <laughs> in in the like second tier, third tier of modern that are on paper too slow, right? It's probably a question of it's not that it's it is too slow, but more that no one's figured out a way to make use of it like it's not that the card's too slow it's that there's no strategy that's good enough that it needs it i don't know you know card is interesting for modern is that new mono rock from dominaria where it adds one it's the cloud post rock Mm -hmm. you know adds one for each of its in play uh there's some interesting you know you can do some wild stuff with that i'll be curious to see if that can make it in i'm gonna keep an eye on foils of that because that could jump up um you know, I was talking with my friends at brunch this morning. I'm like, you know, you can turn three that rock in standard. You can go to standard now. Turn three that rock. Turn four. Cast a second rock. Tap both of them for four mana total. Play Karn minus two. Put a three three. You know, have a three three in play and a Karn and four extra mana from two of those rocks. There, uh, the first one is a, is be- a little below the curve, but man, the second one of those is suddenly way ahead of curve. Patrick so- in. Standard and modern. Yeah. Patrick Sullivan went on a tirade about Karn in standard, saying it is busted, repeatedly yelling that into his microphone this morning um, at the SCG, mm. um, saying that there the the car the card fits so many different places uh, in any kind of mid range strategy that it provides virtually guaranteed card advantage, and that even without focusing on the constructs it could potentially create, um, it's going to be a dominating force in the format. I uh, did not hear that. So uh, buy list on on FTV Realms, just to backtrack for a second, is 153. Uh, <laughs> card Kingdom. So that's just free money, folks. There you go. All right. So my final uh, is actually, you know, all credit where credit is due. This is more of a, a Douglas Johnson pick that he's been harping on about for some time um, that I figured may as well be echoed here. Wade into battle. The Commander 2015 deck is wildly uh, undervalued you can still pick them up on ebay from various vendors at around 40 45 dollars or whatever fiery confluence is at 33 bucks blade of selves is at 14 and urza's incubator is at 18 so you're already up like 15 dollars on the three highest uh, biggest cards in in the deck and the rest of that deck has another like 30 or 40 dollars worth of value in it oh yeah i've seen him post about it before but it's i mean i'm it's cool that you're bringing it to people's attention and also giving them credit. Um, no, the way the battle is the red white one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So this is like Magus of the wheels, two bucks in that deck. Anya merciless angels, two bucks. You got an inferno Titan at a dollar sun Titan at three. You got Gisela at four bucks. Um, you got a soul ring, of course, at $3, various signets, a lightning greaves at four bucks, thought vessel at $8. This thing's packed with value. Yeah. The fu- According to, the I say the fiery confluence alone is is pretty wild in there. That card has been on you fire can just, lately. 
you can basically trade the fiery confluence for the rest of the deck for free. And according to Goldfish, the paper value of this deck is 115. Whew. Instant value. Yeah. It's a lot of dollars. So take take the sealed as bad with a grain of salt, folks. You got to do your research. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, you, well, sure. I mean, sealed in generally, neither of us care for our sealed, but that's when we're like, oh, I don't want to do sealed because I don't want to sit on it and wait for it to appreciate. It's different when it's like, oh, this is already worth more than you're paying for it. There's no work involved there. Um, just a, a quick reminder to our listeners, though, that Wade into Battle is the type of product that is very easy to look great but feel worse because Doug can buy a Wade into Battle. And because he like runs a shop and does lots of buy listing, or he doesn't run a shop, but he does shop-like activities, all of those lightning greaves and soul rings and 2 to $3 cards, it's easy for him to turn around. If you're just a guy in your bedroom at home doing this type of thing, like it's much harder to sell those cards. You can put them in your trade binder. That's your kind of your best shot. Um, and you know, you're kind of restricted to selling the cards that are like five and $6 or over for the most part. So just keep that in mind when you're looking, if, if, if not waiting the battle, other products like that, that anything under $5 gets much more difficult for you to sell if you're just a dude in a room. So card kingdoms weighed into battle by list is 20, 23 on fiery confluence, 15 on Urza's incubator. And you now got the rest of it for free. Well, that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And they're pay- paying nine on Blade of Selves, nine on Command Beacon, which is actually not from that uh, that deck, I don't believe. Um, but yeah, <laughs> the, you're not going to have, you, you basically have to give them Fiery Confluence and Urza's Incubator, and almost no matter where you bought that, the rest of it was free. Okay, so there you guys go. Run out to Target, pick up some Wade in the Battles, trade in the Fiery Confluence and the Blade of Selves, and you have the entire rest of the deck. Congratulations. So I'll, I'll just... I'll throw out one more bonus pick for this week um, because I, I published a tipping point on invocations um, on MGG Price this week, talking about invocations that were um, likely to pop or appreciate um, based on low supply. And that article included uh, Blood Moon, um, which is already high but could go higher. I think it's you know it's about 140. You could easily get to 200. Um, it's actually one of the better looking invocations and highly unlikely to see any less play. Um, no mercy. I called it 30 to hit 50 plus and it immediately sold out now sitting at 70. So, <laughs> uh, kudos if you got some maelstrom pulse from 55 to 80. Um, there's still some copies sitting around, but I wouldn't sit on them because Jund is using the card and has the fervent is at 140 right now. And I don't like it at that price, but you can get them in Europe around 80. Um, and I suspect that that 80 will eventually get close get over a hundred um, almost no matter what happens when standards done. Cause I'm assuming that Hazaret having already popped as an indication is a reflection of modern and legacy play and not his dominance in standard. Her, her dominance. Her. So it's a she, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say Hazaret's price increase is probably, is definitely partly tied to her appearing in modern. Yeah. And apparently in legacy as well in, uh, in like ancient tomb driven red decks. We were talking earlier today uh, about, you know, the new Dominaria cards and that black spell that um, destroys a creature and then returns a creature planeswalker from your graveyard to play, which is, is pretty wild, right? Like remove a creature and then re- reanimate something for five mana. I mean, Brasca's Contempt at four mana only does half of that. 
Uh, but it was pointed out that Vraska's Contempt Exiles, which is really relevant because of Hazaret and Scarab God. So, uh, you know, Hazaret and Scarab God alone are, are doing a pretty darn good job of warping the format and what cards are playable and what cards aren't. So, you know, kind of keep that in mind, too. Are you talking about Yogmoth's File Offering? Uh, probably. Put up to one target creature or Planeswalker card from Graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. Destroy up to one target creature or Planeswalker and then exile the offering? Yep. It's a legendary sorcery, so you have to have a legendary creature or planeswalker in play, but in Commander, that's kind of, you know, every turn of the game. Yeah, and I mean, even really, even in Standard, I don't think that's going to be hard to do because Dominaria is printing so many legendary cards, right? Like, and, and at Uncommon and so forth. Right, right, right. So it's going to be a lot easier to incidentally end up with those. And hey, Mox Amber's legendary, right? Just stick Mox Amber into play and there you go. Now your all your other cards are turned on. One of the interesting things is that you could also have been talking about the Eldest Reborn, which is the, the saga that says each opponent sacrifices a creature or planeswalker, then each opponent discards a card, then put target creature or planeswalker card from a graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one is good too. Um, it's a little odd to me that both of those cards exist in the same set, especially since you've also got Phyrexian scriptures at four, which is where you put a plus one plus one counter on one of your creatures it becomes an artifact then you destroy all the non-artifact creatures and then you exile all cards from all opponents graveyards yeah there are three like reasonably decent reanimation effects in standard now or at least even in, just in dominaria actually i don't yeah. know i'm not sure how they landed on that but there you go so the invocation that i didn't mention that hasn't popped yet is diabolic intent um, oh. which is play, played in 7,000-plus decks on EDH Rec. Um, currently, you can pick that invocation up at $32. I think it's going to hit 50 or 60 pretty easily, given a short period of time. Supply is already very low. And because this lets you tutor and all you have to do is sack a creature, it's awesome at all the token strategies in EDH that happen to be running black. The invocations are ugly, but the ones that look best are definitely the black cards. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is a good card. It's just demonic tutor sacrifice a guy, right? That's... Yeah. yeah. All right, let's move on here. Uh, metagame we can review last, uh, this past Monday's mocks, um, taken down by humans. We uh, also saw two extra sets, um, humans in the top eight. Eldrazi Aggro in second place, some Living End, a bunch of Hollow One um, outside of the top 16. More Hollow, a good bit more Hollow One. Damn, that is everywhere. Uh, Death Shadow reminds us it's still in the format. Some Titan, some Hate Bear. So an interesting little mix, although certainly leaning heavily in the hollow one direction, uh, didn't manage to top four, but it did take like half the top 16 slots or some nonsense. Um, I mean, I'm looking at it now and there's nothing really new here. Nothing's changed too much. Um, so I don't have uh, I don't have anything for you to do with this at the moment. Uh, we're, we're, we know the deck at this point. I suppose if it continues to be very good... Um, which, I mean, it's making it look like it will be, you will start to see some of the more resilient card prices move. So, like, Blood Gas prices or Street Wraiths or Hollow Ones, um, cards that you generally wouldn't expect the prices to move too much on uh, because, like, the supply is kind of high or what have you. Uh, You know, if this keeps doing well and doing well and doing well, it will drive those prices. Um, I, I want Hollow One to be a staple deck without dominating um because i need time for hollow one foils to get to my exit point 
Um, I'd also like to unload the extremely bad spec I made on standard Flame Week Phoenixes at $8 a piece. <laughs> you bought those when they were in standard? Yeah, at eight bucks. Yeah. Two play sets. Um, they actually were up like non-foils were up like 24% or something this week for Flame Week Phoenix. Didn't make our list because it wasn't quite high enough. Um, but that's solid appreciation for a card that was like 50 cents basically bulk before this deck showed up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's going in the right direction at least. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a little worried about how much how consistent hollow one actually seems to be um overall uh it could potentially be nerfed if it keeps you know putting three or four copies into top eight after top eight so i'm hoping it's more like an occasional one or two copies in the top eight um with no massive con- consistent pattern i don't think they would be hesitant if it was too dominant to pull a card out of this deck like get rid of goblin lore or something since the card is used almost nowhere else yeah, for sure. So this one event doesn't mean anything, but we do know that Hollow One has done well as a as an archetype at several events in a row, and not oppressively so. But this event certainly does not look great. Um, and again, it's only one instance. But if you keep seeing this happen, then I completely agree. Wizards will pull the rug out from underneath it. Uh, and you know they don't love dredge strategies. They tend to be kind of uninteractive. Uh, and yeah, Goblin Lore would I would. Take a gas goblin lore is a pretty good one to eat. They could also get rid of burning inquiry, I suppose. The rest of these are fairly fine. They might, although they might use the opportunity to get rid of street wraith too. You know, they don't. I don't know how they feel about that. Death shadow was certainly um, public enemy number one for a while, and that relied heavily on street wraith too. So uh, I don't know if they're eventually just going to say, you know what, street wraith keeps showing up and doing things we don't really want it to do. It's not a card that we really like in modern. Uh, so we're just going to get rid of that entirely because it's it's not a card we like. So certainly on the table. Um, it's on the it's on the same list as something like a Simeon Spirit Guide, right? Where I think everybody agrees like they don't really deserve to be in the format, but they haven't caused like pointed problems that have uh, created like flare points. So, yeah. but I think that because Street Wraith impacts a bunch of other decks, they're more likely to target something like like Goblin Lore, where the the fallout is pretty limited. Um, so <laughs> the other thing is this this deck helps me sell Russian Gurmag Anglers, Tassiger the Golden Fang, Collective Brutality. So I, I want it to calm down just a little bit. Right. You want your deck to do well, but you don't want it to do so well that you uh, lose, your, lose your investment because it gets banned. Yeah. The yeah um, so... The most interesting deck on this list is the Eldrazi Aggro that was green-red, um, leveraging Bloodbraid Elves to get things like Eldrazi Obligator and Matter Reshaper on the table. Thing runs two Nest Invader main and Noble Hierarch along the usual uh, Reality Smasher and Thought Not Seer components. Only spells in the deck are Ancient Stirrings, Dismember, and Lightning Bolt. Uh, yeah, that is an interesting one too. Uh, you know, Not just the Bloodbraid Elf, but also the Obligator showing up again. I know that that had been discussed briefly in the past, um, you know, that, that popped up in another event. People were like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And now here it is again. I, I'm a little surprised. Well, and obli- the obli- the blue-red El- obligator builds were the version of, Rhea- of of Eldrazi in Eldrazi Winter that won the Pro Tour. Right. Um, and, and that many of the other teams had not found. So like, Eldra- like the blue-red tech using Sky Spawner and Obligator um, turned out to be the, the mirror match beater. And because you could take your opponent's reality smasher and hit them upside the head. The, so it's interesting. I, and I bought obligator foils, which I have been sitting on since that period, <laughs> which were, 
which strangely enough, weren't even the worst spec from that period. That would be the um, Expedition Eye of Ugin's I bought that suffered a like $140 loss per copy. <laughs> yeah, that's a bummer. <laughs> uh, yeah, that one, that one's done. You know, the, the Bloomless Titan's also kind of interesting uh, that that archetype's still hanging around. I kind of wonder if it's better than it seems to be given credit for, essentially. Um, you know, you, it uses Azusa and Primeval Titan. I mean, we kind of remember the deck in general. Uh, it uses Sakura Tribe Scout to uh, to play something similar to the Bloom angle um, and explore. So it's a secure tribe scout and explore, you know, play that, that role of dumping lands into play. But, mm -hmm. you know, this deck was insanely powerful back when it had summer bloom and there's a reason summer bloom got banned. Um, you know, granted part of what made the deck good was somebody cheating with it regularly, but, uh, the deck could still, the deck, <laughs> the deck could like win on turn two or three, but also was it nearly impossible to beat in the long game. Uh, and you know, the, losing Summer Bloom slowed it down a little bit, but it keeps its long game. Uh, so the it's, it's certainly a viable strategy, and who knows, you know, what we could see show up that would uh, would really push it over the edge again. Uh, you know, we just saw Azusa's get printed in Masters twenty five, but that just means the price comes down. If this ends up being, you know, a real deck at some point again, uh, Azusa's will be primed to spike because the price will have finally come down. Sakura Tribe Scouts would also probably be on that list. Um, maybe explorers, but probably not because they're just a common. They'd only be in one deck. Yeah, I mean, part of part of this being fading um, has to be that Sam Black and and company Justin Cohen, I think, was yes. the one who actually yep. won or second finished second at a major tournament yeah. with the deck. Um, uh, kind of moved on to Lantern Control, yes. right? Um, and I, I haven't. I am not up to speed on whether you know Sam ever wrote an article that explained why he would prefer like he, that he thinks. Lantern Control is a stronger deck than this would be. Um, but it seems like it's, you know, on the fringes uh, for the time right. being. Um, okay. You got any more thoughts on this format, on this event? No, I think we can move on to our grab bag topic of the week. I uh, said so we were going to talk a little bit about um, what it looks like, you know, kind of go back to the basics, what it looks like to store and ship your cards. Uh, you know, it's something that everyone has to deal with. And, you know, we don't talk about the basics as much as we, we might want to. So some people are probably wondering, like, well, what, you know, you guys don't really know how many cards we may or may not have. You wonder how we sell them, how, you know, what does that look like? So we'll kind of run through that, I guess, a little bit. And anything else that comes to mind as we walk through this? Uh, me personally, I keep all of my specs that are for sale. Um, I keep those in like a two row, uh, a two row, like one case. So it's like a 2K box or something like that. Um and, you know, I, I alphabetize by first letter. So all of my A's, all of my B's and so forth. Uh, I don't bother to alphabetize further than that because it's not necessary. If you have like several thousand cards for sale, that's probably more helpful um, to try and alphabetize to that level of detail just so that you don't have to look through 700 A's to find the one card that you need to find one ad nauseum. But, you know, I right now have somewhere in the ballpark of like, 200-ish cards for sale on TCG Player. So it's not hard for me to, to find what I'm looking for pretty fast as long as it's chunked out by Alphabet. Um, you should definitely keep your cards for sale separate from everything else. Keep them available and separate. Don't play with cards that you have for sale because especially if you put something up, 
you put it at kind of a higher price because you're like, all right, I have this this masterpiece chromatic lantern. I'm going to throw it in my deck. I'm going to put it on TCG player for 150, even though the low is one, is 90 right now. Because once it'll get once it gets to 150, that's when I want to sell it, uh, and I can just wait it out. So you just wait and you wait and months go by and you've got the chromatic lantern and maybe like you trade it or you put that deck someplace, what have you. Then you see that you sold this chromatic lantern and you're like, uh, where the hell did I put that card? And then you forget that you stashed it in the CDH deck that you put on the shelf because you haven't played in a while and it's a pain in the butt. So keep all your cards that are for sale separate from your collection. Keep them right there. Uh, Sleeve all the foils. Um, Probably hard case the foils too. Uh, there was a brief period actually in today's cast that we had to edit out, but I was moving my water bottle and a drop fell into my cards and I'd like pull them out and start drying them off. And I think I ruined one or two, which is kind of a bummer. Um, (laughs) so don't keep water bottles near your cards uh, and also try and keep, especially the more valuable ones sleeved, even if they're just sitting in the box. Um, and then I also keep uh, a bunch of hard cases in the box along with, uh, with some other assorted items that I use, you know, sleeves and that type of thing. Uh, what's your setup look like for storing all of your cards that are currently for sale? I certainly agree with the um, make sure that your for sale box is, is separated out. And that's even given that, as you know, my Atraxa deck is nothing but specs. Um, but that's because that's sitting right beside the other box. The My total organization principle is that I have the cards that I play with that are in my collection that are organized by format. So I have like four rows full of modern legacy and EDH cards. I have, as you said, a two row for my for sale because I think, you know, our inventory is pretty similar in size and scope. Um, and then I have two four rows that are uh, specs that are not ready for sale yet. So stuff that is um, uh, ripening on the vine, as it were. <laughs> Um, All of that stuff is organized, not just alphabetical, but by color. So I go artifact, white, green, blue, red, black, multi lands, and then alphabetize within those. Um, I find that that helps me to pull stuff out relatively quickly out of that fairly large set of cards. Like that's a few thousand. Um, And then I've got decks for active decks for various um, components uh, on various shelves in a cabinet. And then uh, a hidden compartment that has the really expensive stuff and um, a drawer that has all the supplies and stuff. In terms of actually uh, protecting cards that are in the collection um, or in inventory, I use perfect fits on everything over five bucks. Um, I perfect fit absolutely every foil and put it in a scenario packed tight in airtight plastic boxes that will not allow it to warp any more than... Uh, or to minimize foil warping on the premise that I can get perfect sets at basically perfect fits at like two cents a piece and um, selling a whole bunch of foils with perfect fits on them is not something that a buy list vendor is going to be very happy about. So you're going to have to de-sleeve if you ever get to that point um, because they need to be able to check uh, condition really quickly and they can't do that if things are in sleeve. Um, But For shipping to people, having everything already located in Perfect Fits is perfect because then I can throw them in a penny sleeve um, uh, in the opposite direction of the Perfect Fit, which is facing down. The penny sleeve faces up, put both of those into a hard case, and that gives you a relatively bulletproof way to ship. Anything over 100 bucks, I actually put in a um, multi-card sleeve that folds over at the top and and, uh, has adhesive on it so that you can have basically a moisture lock for something like a masterpiece soul ring that you're shipping 
to make sure that it doesn't get warped in transit if it gets left in somebody's mailbox or whatever. Um, I know a lot of people ship everything tracked. I tend to not do that. Um, anything under $100, I will just ship plain white envelope and take the risk. Um, I've actually got a Masterpiece Chalice of the Void claim on eBay right now, which is like something I get about every three or four months or whatever, where somebody tries to scam the system and says, oh, I noticed that this isn't tracked. I'm going to try to get it for free. Two thirds of those people I can talk out of being a dick um, with some gentle nudging. Um, and then every once in a while, I just swallow it. And compared to the price of shipping cross-border from Canada constantly, it's not even close. Um, boy, you don't, uh, you don't do tracking until it's over $100, huh? Yeah, because when I add up the, the cost saved, like basically it's 10 bucks every time I want to ship something tracked. Um, so I'm, and I'm shipping out dozens of orders a week, <clears throat> most of which are, are over 50 bucks. So if I ship, ship most of that plain white envelope and get scammed twice a year, it's not even close. Like I've saved 80% over the cost of shipping. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that, that makes sense. I, you know, the, I, I, the numbers back you up. It's just one of those things that feels like for me, it would feel bad. Uh, uh, knowing that that's that I had to eat that risk occasionally, but it does make sense. I've bumped mine up to like 30 ish, $35 um, is where I will stop doing plain white envelopes and start doing uh, bubble mailers with tracking. Um, I know some people in the States will go up much higher than that. Kind of just depends on what you're doing. Uh, track track shipping USPS is what? Three or $4? For me, I can do a bubble mailer tracked for, I think it's two fifty six. Um, oh, I mean that 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 would that would be a game changer if I had that available to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure I do. Yeah, if it's ten bucks a piece, then yeah, that's nuts. Um, one of the one of the other things I do, and you're, this probably doesn't come up if you're selling like two or three cards a week, um, but if you're if you're doing a little bit more than that, um, I'm I'm a little more green than some people, and you know I get TCG player orders where I ordered like a dollar fifty worth of cards. And it comes in a full-sized envelope, like full-size legal envelope, and then an entire sheet of paper inside for a packing slip. And I'm like, this is so much paper, and it's completely unnecessary because the amount of information on that packing slip that I need could fit on like the space of three quarters. So what I do is I will uh, pull up Microsoft Word, drop in a table, and create my own little uh, tiny packing slips. They're roughly the size of two-ish, two to three stamps. Um, and they just have uh, a half of my order number printed because your TCG, the first five digits of your TCG play, player order number don't change. Um, have that pre-printed, have my name pre-printed for the store. Uh, and then I print out like several sheets. And then I use my wife's paper cutter, you know, one of those big flat things with a handle on it that you had in elementary school uh, and chop all those up. And it's a little annoying to, to do uh, probably takes like 10 to 20 minutes, but then I have like several hundred or even thousand um, of these little slips that it takes me two seconds to fill them out by hand. Uh, and then I, you know, tape those over the um, hard case uh, so that, you know, you pull the hard case out of the envelope you see the card, you see this little paper slip with the, with the card name written on it, you've got the order number, you've got my name on it so you know who sent it to you, and it gives you a uh, an edge to grab to pull the tape off of the hard case. So it saves paper, it's easy for the buyer, uh, and it makes it easy to get the tape off the case. So I, I like doing that, um, and I guess I can post a picture of that at some point. 
uh, if people are really curious. But I, I'm a fan because I really just hate getting orders with an entire sheet of paper for nothing but an order number on it. That's a solid process. I actually think bubble mailers in general are overkill if you're using a hard case in a in a PWE. Um, oh, the the number of orders that are going to get destroyed in the mail is is pretty low. I, I would happily ship three hundred dollar cards in plain white envelopes if you could do tracking on them, but you can't. Or you have to like because it's this ridiculous rule with the United States Post Office at least that you can send first class packages. For like the 256 but they have to they actually have to be a, uh, a big enough thickness like in the past i had to put crumpled up paper in the bubble mailer to get it wide enough in order for the post office to consider a package if it was too th- oh, weird. if it was too thin they wouldn't let it go and they're like you have to send this as tracked as a letter and then it's like seven dollars so like bubble mailers for most people in the u.s are actually in order to get past these odd postal service rules and not because they feel that they're necessary. Right. Probably because of the way the machinery works and how they're sorting, um, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it is. Cause it's, it's, you're completely right. It's total overkill and I don't feel the need to do it, but I have to, because it saves me a ton of money on shipping, especially when you can buy bubble mailers at like eight cents a piece when you buy them in bulk. So like, it's not like it's expensive. All right. So that's a pretty solid overview of how we manage our uh, storage and sales process. If any of you have any questions, feel free to send them our way on Twitter or whatever. And we'll try to catch up with you guys on a future episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess last thought, um, it's worth setting up, going through the effort to set up um, your printer uh, so that you can print envelopes. That saved me a tremendous amount of time um, printing just my return address on there. Well, printing the entire envelope, everything but the stamp. I still just buy rolls of stamps. Um is, is, is definitely worth a couple of minutes. It'll take you to figure out how to configure it. Depending on your printer, it can be maddening. But once you get the process down, you just pull the packing, uh, the shipping list out of TCG player, drop it into Word, uh, you know, put it all together, and then you can print out, you know, five, 10, 30 envelopes in a couple of minutes where handwriting those is, is a nightmare. Uh, so totally worth your time to go through that if you're doing more than two or three orders at a time. Cool. Um, we should also point out to our listeners that we're interviewing Brian Nascenti, um early next week, and it'll be tagged on to the end of the next episode. That'll be episode 114 next weekend. Um, Brian is the holder of one of the more important uh, private magic collections in the continental United States. Um, he's currently selling a chunk of it for, I think it's a 300K chunk of his collection for about 225 on the high-end group. Um so we're going to delve into his, you know, history of collecting, the nature of his collection, and get his thoughts on the future of magic finance. Okay, that should be pretty exciting. Um, probably a, a look into a part of magic that I'm sure a large number of people are unfamiliar with. Uh, but okay, well, let's uh, let's wrap this up. James, where can our listeners find you? As per usual, you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. And I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday doing the Watchtower, MTGPrice.com. And you can also find me uh, on the webcast, Cartel Aristocrats. Also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 113. 
Uh, I thought it was another great episode. A lot of useful information. Uh, Thanks for joining me, James. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you guys all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm.